this is Jeff Morton. I am with my co-host, Dr. Dina Dye. Say hello, Dina. Hello, Jeff. Shalom. How are you today? I'm doing very good. Uh, folks, this is going to be kind of an important show for me. Um, I kind of want to do something a little bit different because the heart of the program is to return to Eden, and that statement doesn't encompass really what this broadcast is all about. And Dean and I have been hitting and missing the program. We've had different topics. But really the heart of the program is we, we want to get back to the authority of the biblical writers, which means we have to take a look at their culture. We have to look at the time frame from which they did their writing. We need to look at how the writings were translated and or finished or compiled. Uh, all of these, for example, Moses didn't write and tell us about his death and where he was built, buried. So we have to kind of go back and just look at some of the things textually and conceptually in order for us to understand how that person was writing the material. That's what the returning to Eden is all about. And one of the things uh, about Dr. Dina that I, Dean, I'm going to talk about you for a minute. In fact, I'm, I'm going to ask you some questions because I have a whole other audience that that I'm really trying to, uh, to capture with Returning to Eden and our broadcast. So I kind of want people to know a little bit more about you. So if it's okay with you, before we get on our subject matter, we're going to be talking about what did J Jesus mean or Yeshua mean. And uh, Dina's done a 10-part series on it, uh, really coming out of the book of Matthew. And we're going to talk a lot about that during the broadcast. But I want to ask, you, Dean, if it's okay, uh, some questions about, maybe even a little personal, uh, about your experiences uh, having been raised up in a Jewish, conservative Jewish home in Canada without Jesus as a backdrop to everything you've learned. In fact, that's one of my questions. Uh, you were raised in a conservative Jewish home. I have that right, correct? That is correct, yes. Okay, and there was no talk about Jesus in the cross and all of these things as part of your identity to your culture when you were growing well, up? Well, technically correct, but there is an influence that uh, is important, so which I need to explain. So, yes, in Ottawa, Canada, back in the 50s and 60s, was a very tight Jewish community. Everybody really knew everybody. My whole family was there. And we attended synagogue to a degree and certainly celebrated the, the high holidays, uh, especially Passover we always had at my grandmother's house. And Sukkot, Feast of Tabernacles, was a special festival that we held at the synagogue. I went to, a, uh, he I went to Hebrew school, so I learned the prayers. I learned Hebrew long about in the 6 to 10 age group. And I attended an Orthodox Jewish summer camp every year. So even though we lived outside the city, uh, in a different, you know, we weren't downtown, I did reconnect with my Jewish friends every summer. And I'd be there for eight weeks. So it was, and it was an Orthodox camp. We kept kosher and uh, we, had, we celebrated Shabbat. That was sort of the environment. However, my family had moved, as I said, outside the city into a predominantly Gentile neighborhood in which I was the only Jew in the neighborhood. So uh, people did not understand our family in the neighborhood and the things that we did. We stuck out like a sore thumb, if you can imagine, at that time. So my friends, who were all quote-unquote Christians, 
some Catholic, some Protestant. They were very, quote, religious, and they attended, uh, they went to their Sunday schools, and they went to church, and of course they, especially Christmas and Easter. So sometimes they would just take me with them, and my parents were not adverse to that, so I ended up, you know, going to Catholic Mass on Christmas. I mean, I have no clue what's going on, but... And they felt so sorry for me at Christmas because we didn't have a tree and presents and all that. So they they would invite me over and my mother would just shoo me out and I'd go to all my friends' houses and collect presents and bring them home, you know. So I had, uh, you know, there was, I had an exposure to it. The other thing that we had in, in school was a religion class every day in public school. What would happen was the teacher would... Uh, point me out and say, uh, you don't have to be participate in this class because you're Jewish. Which, you know, saying that to a young person, I didn't want to bring all this, you know, energy on me, so I would just sit in the class and listen. So I did hear the Lord's Prayer, things like that. And those seeds were planted, even though it didn't make sense to me, but that, that was part of it. Did experience, uh, living in that environment, we did experience some persecution I was marginalized in a variety of ways. For a young person, you don't really understand what's going on. But, you know, when your whole class is invited to an event, but you're left out, you don't really understand why. But a lot of it had to do with the fact that we were different and we were Jewish in that environment. So my entire community, my school, there was never any Jewish people until I was much older and in high school. So again, people didn't understand our family. So that's, I did have exposure to it. It wasn't like a complete vacuum. But uh, in my home, my father uh, went off to serve in World War II when he was 15 and experienced the horrors of that. He grew up in the Jewish ghetto in Montreal. So he was uh, persecuted virtually every day of his life and beat up for being a Jew. He ended up involved in the Italian campaign in, in uh, Italy, and uh, he was part of the rescue of Dunkirk. He drove ambulances in, in Europe, in Belgium, and Holland. So he came home pretty well with, you know, PTSD, shell-shocked at what he'd seen. And so he was really pretty emotionally MIA as a father. You know, he did the best he could under the circumstances. He had a terrible life, really. My mother, on the other hand, had come from a fairly well-to-do Jewish family in Canada, and she actually wanted to go and be a brain surgeon, but at that time they didn't let women <laughs> to the university. So she ended up becoming a physical therapist and, and very successful. So she was actually the vice president of Physical Therapy Congress for Canada. She had several businesses in Ottawa, but she was... As my, do as my father was emotionally MIA, my mother was physically MIA. And most of my friends' mothers were at home every day when they came home from school, had cookies and milk, you know, that whole thing. And I was kind of raised with a nanny that I didn't like. So there was a lot of emotional baggage that I carried. And so my, I just want to emphasize that the key in all of this, the reason I understand and you know, where, why Yeshua, Jesus, means so much to me is that at the point when I met him, <laughs> he transformed my life because I knew well, I, from... I, I, I hold that thought because I'm going to get there. 
But I want okay. I want to stay where we are for just a moment because I think it's important for people to know know you in the way that I know you, uh, and there's certain parts of your background and your childhood things that we've never talked about, for example, a lot of what I'm hearing today. But now, as you were dealing in the Christian world, the Catholic, the Protestants, and every other denomination that exists, perhaps, you also were learning your, quote-unquote, ancestral heritage as a Jewish girl, and it was just you and your sister, is that correct? Yeah, um, I'm eight years older than my sister. So when I was younger, my parents were very involved in the synagogue and the community. But as uh, I got older and my sister came along and my mother became more involved in her business, they were less and less involved in the Jewish community and attending synagogue regularly. So I had the benefit uh, in those early years, up to about 10 years old, of being immersed in that in a way my sister wasn't and she doesn't have the connection well she didn't have the connection that I did to the Jewish community except uh, going to camp she didn't attend Hebrew school or anything like that so it was that moment in time for me in which the the father uh, grounded me in my early years in everything and all things Jewish which would not have included the cross if you will or no. a lot of the theological exegesis that we've come to know as part of the Christian motif, if you will. You didn't have any of nothing. that. Nothing. No, nothing. So, okay. I always knew, well, Yahweh, God, however you want to address him, I always knew him from, I don't even remember, my first, I always talked to him, I always knew him from my earliest memories. So then you, you, you go through your teenage years. You end up, you know, uh, chasing after, uh, as you put it, and I'm going to paraphrase, crystals and New Age theology and a whole bunch of different things, which is kind of common for a lot of Jewish people to do when they, you know, Chris, the American kid, he leaves the church as soon as he hits 18. For you it was, okay, I'm done. I'm going to go skiing and I'm going to traverse you were basically a hippie, a self-described hippie, as you've talked talk to me about it. But then you, you shared with me the story about having gone to, on a ski trip, and you ended up somehow in Israel, and you met Messiah Jesus. That, that's kind of where, from that Not moment. Not quite. Well, well, go ahead. I'll let you tell yeah, the story. Yeah, so uh, in my high school years, I mean, your typical Jew seems to have a giant hole in there looking for the truth and I was just one more and I got very involved in the new age movement of course this is the birth of the dawn of the hippie movement so I merrily jumped into all of that and won't go into detail there and at some point decided I lived in Ottawa did not want to be there anymore because it's a civil servant city I'm like I cannot relate to these people and uh, basically went over to Europe I, I lived in Europe in the Middle East uh, for about five years I lived out of a backpack 14 pound backpack and just traveled all around this is the, the late 70s when you could actually do that sort of thing and uh, I did work in a ski area for uh, a season and after that I uh, as part of the package I was able to fly to Israel so I don't remember 74 
it was. It was after the Yom Kippur War. I ended up going to Israel for an, about four or five months and lived there. Now, I, uh, I met a man from Holland who was a Christian, and he was really one of the first, like, actual Christians. Because growing up, everybody just went to church because their parents went to church. They didn't try to proselytize me or convert me or tell me anything about Yeshua or Jesus, nothing. But this guy did. And so I was very fascinated by that. We uh, spent some time in Jerusalem and, you know, walked the stations of the cross. And, you know, I learned a lot that most, you know, nothing I actually knew before. But those seeds were planted. It wasn't until later, uh, and I'm not going to go into the whole story, but I ended up in Taos, New Mexico, long, via San Francisco, via an earthquake in Guatemala. So I do have that story on my uh, homepage, on my website, uh, free story. <laughs> uh, I think it's called a now for something different or now for a laugh because I tell my whole story because it's quite detailed. But I do end up in Taos, and I do end up, believe it or not, in a uh, aura balancing center, you know, for the New Age world. But anyways, to make a long story short, the guy told me, you know, waving a crystal, that in my former life, you know, because he believed in reincarnation, that I was a disciple of Yeshua in Israel. So that got me all excited. I'm like, well, that's cool. And then I began to read a bunch of books, you know, the life of Paul and Peter and stuff like that. And then I read the Bible. I was living with a friend of mine. She had gone to YWAM in, in Hawaii and been transformed, came home, and we were, I read the entire Bible cover to cover in about a week. And when I got to the story of the woman caught in the act of adultery and Yeshua's response, it just it absolutely blew my mind. You have to understand I had never read the New Testament. Zero, not a nothing. So this is my first time in my life at, what, 29, 28, reading the New Testament. And that story rocked my world. And that's when, after going through all of the stuff and all of the different religions and isms and everything else, I knew that he was my king. He was the one I had been searching for. He was the one who would transform me and change me. But but you didn't, and I'm going to... Um take a little brevity here. You didn't realize that and become a Christian. How, how did that work? When you well, were early on, there, so you said to me once, let me just say this. Okay. You said to me once, when you read the New Testament, you went, this, this is Jewish. That's what you said yeah. to me. So go yeah, ahead. So, I'd like you to elaborate on that. So as I read the New Testament, uh, I mean, it, it wasn't, in some sense, wasn't really any different than the Old Testament to me. The language was similar. Uh, it, it made sense. I didn't, at that point, I didn't know very much. I ended up in a church, and as I was doing, they ended up making me the teacher of the youth, <laughs> like a week after I became a believer. And I began to teach the kids, <laughs> barely older than them, <laughs> So I taught them the only thing I really knew, and that was the festivals. And so as I began to see the festivals in the New Testament, I'm going, well, you know, there's no difference here. I began to make the connection for them between the Old Testament and the New Testament, 
And then I began to see more and more how the New Testament, because I'd always been told this is for Christians or Gentiles and this is for Jews. I didn't recognize it. Well, it was really seamless and the same thing. And so I began, as I began to teach and research and study, I realized there was, it was a seamless story from Genesis to Revelation. And we're going back, this is 1979. And that's how I began to view the scriptures. As I began to introduce that in when I would teach, it became very difficult because pastors could just, they couldn't handle it. They did not recognize it. They didn't want to talk about it. They didn't want to even, you know, the, the Old Testament's there, had nice stories, talked about God, talked about God. It didn't make a whole lot of sense. You know, yeah, maybe Yeshua was popped up here, there, and everywhere, but they didn't see the big picture. They didn't see the whole story. And so I began to try to introduce that, but, you know, got into plenty of trouble. Uh, this would be along about the 80s as I began to implement. Now, I, I have to say I did have a pastor early on who recognized these things, and we would celebrate Passover in our church in the early 80s, and I was, you know, I would be involved and participated in that. Unfortunately, he wasn't our pastor for very long and went off to the mission field. But he was one because he uh, who recognized the significance of the Old Testament and that the New Testament was an, uh, inherently a Jewish book. Okay, so so now you know I, I kind of get this, folks. I get this from on several levels, but I wanted to be a little more intimate with Dina for a couple of reasons before we really do get into the conversation about what what did Jesus mean or what did Yeshua mean because. I think it's important for people to understand that Dina has a different kind of mindset than most of your average Christians, but also she was able to bridge that and spend the next 40 years teaching and learning and researching far beyond what, what I would have thought to do, but also you had this Jewish imprint, ancestral heritage, from which to work from, not simply a born-again experience, if you will. So when you discovered Jesus, I mean, what really happened in your spirit that Christians might not be able to source because they didn't have that Jewish upbringing? What, what was it like for you as you started having aha moments? And how did that matter? And why does it matter today that people understand the value of the Old Testament in the way that you have always known it? Well, first I would have to say I was a different person. You know, whatever happened at that moment, I was transformed, or I like to say now I was restored. I didn't understand it. I didn't know what it meant, but it, the hole in the heart was healed. Now that's not to say, you know, that's just the beginning of the journey when you kind of sort through everything. But I could not deny that I had been transformed and changed. And this is the one thing I think people tend to forget in their story as they go on. They don't, and maybe, you know, some who have grown up in the church don't recognize that. But a healed heart and a clean and fresh and new start, which I have come to understand now, is simply a recreation event. Going back to Genesis chapter 1, we, we don't, you know, you and I, we don't look at the creation event as a sort of a material origins. We look at it as um, God creating a kingdom and, and installing a king over it. And all of the stories in the Bible 
are just replaying that or returning us, that's what we call our show, returning us to Eden. They are recreation or restoration events. So when Paul talks of us as being a new creation, it's not some abstract subjective term. It is go back to Genesis 1 and he has recreated you in the way he has created the entire universe for there to be a kingdom and you are under the sovereignty of a king. And so this was our battle, of course, through life remains uh, our disobedience to our king and our want, you know, wanting to go our own way, which is what we see in the story of Adam and Eve. So that, um, that's significant. And then as I recognize the value of the New Testament and the stories that were inherently Jewish in their flavor, but it required a lot of research because I had to go back and look at the history and the context and the culture and the language to be able to unpack a lot of what was going on in the New Testament. Because we have to be honest here, there's stuff that makes absolutely no sense. So if you're going to insert your modern mind into an ancient document, you're going to come up with wrong conclusions. And I think that's happened in the church, unfortunately. Uh, my, I, I, back at that time, I have to say, I did not understand the big picture. That is something that I have learned as I've grown, and really in the last 10 years has made more sense. But back then, I just began to read the stories through the cultural lens of being a Jew. Now, that's being a modern Jew, okay? I didn't really have a lot of understanding of the ancient world. Now, in the 90s, I went back to school to get my degree. Uh, I didn't finish my bachelor's. And I always had a fascination with history. When I was in public school, I, you know, I was fascinated by the ancient mythologies of Greeks and the Romans. When I was, I think I was in grade seven, I did a speech on the seven wonders of the ancient world. So there was some fascination with that. So when I went back to school, I went to Southwestern Assemblies of God in Waxahachie. I took a number of history courses in ancient Babylonian world wrote a number of papers in that. So that all came to fruition again. Uh, you know, that was planted, learned about covenants and things like that. I did put some of that aside as I was more involved in um, sort of the messianic world. But that thread was always there right from the very beginning, and that was how I always approached the scriptures, especially true in the early years of unpacking the festivals, because we see in the book of John, Yeshua's always, the mention of festivals is very important to understand the backdrop of the chapter. For example, chapter uh, 7 speaks of the Feast of Tabernacles, you know. And so to make, a, make sense of Yeshua saying that out of his belly will flow rivers of living water, like what on earth does that even mean? That's a recreation, return to Eden language story, which Sukkot, Feast of Tabernacles, was all about that. So you know, it, it was a, over a course of years, but it was an effort to show people that your foundation goes, really, Genesis 1 is your foundation. Well, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a remarkable thing because, you know, we, how do I say this? We in the Christian world, our foundation is like 2,000 years old. But the story of the Bible is 4,000, excuse me, yeah, you know, 7,000 years almost. And so 
we we cannot. To, there's two problems and two biases and two forms of bigotry, in my opinion, when we're talking about this subject. Number one is most of the last 2,000 years has been about a church revelation as opposed to a restoration revelation of the house of Israel. And so when, when we start getting all of these things intertwined, it becomes the Gospels were about a bunch of Jewish people who gave up their Jewish heritage in order to become born-again Christians. And that's probably, that's probably, in my opinion, one of the greatest divides that occurred is because we took the Jewish people and we had to make them something better. And so now they became Christians and the story became about the church. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that, but that is, in a sense, what happened. And unfortunately, the scars that are left on the, on the Jewish people are, are, are historical. But at the same time, you start teaching about Jesus. And, and we'll call him Jesus for the, for the benefit of our audience, but, I mean, his name was Yehoshua or Jesus and, or Yahshua. And, I, I, you know, there's so many groups out there that throw you off their social media page. If you don't say the name right, I don't have time for that kind of lunacy. But we do want to give the author back the meaning of the name Yeshua, which means salvation. And so you started teaching about Yeshua. Now, how does a Jewish girl get accepted in the Christian world talking about a Jewish ancestor? And how has that been for you over the course of the last 30, 40 years? Well, I mean, therein lies the problem <laughs> because I was um, summarily removed from a number of churches and positions of authority because of my premise. Uh, it was the problem for many, and this happened in the early years in the Jews for Jesus movement and the early Messianic movement because they became churches and they wanted Jews who came in to basically assimilate into church doctrine. And I continued to push back against that, and that was, that was a big problem. Because Yeshua, of course, we know, was Jewish in, in the land of Israel, surrounded by Jewish people. Nobody seemed to spend any time looking at the historical background of, of Israel at the time, with the Hellenism influence, with the Roman Empire, with the Herodian dynasty and with the temple structure. Like nobody ever looks at any of that and that all comes to bear on the New Testament. So my journey took me through all of that. So it, it was, it's not been easy. It's never been easy. Um, and I think we don't have a very good understanding. Well, I know we don't. I grew up in Canada where at least we had a monarch. <laughs> so we had some sort of connection. But we in the Western, modern Western world have virtually no understanding of kingdom, kingship, and king. And that's the bottom line. That is the story of the Bible, uh, that God established a kingdom and installed his king to rule over the kingdom. And we've, you know, we've missed it. And the, and the other thing we, we don't really, we can't, I mean, it's not possible for us to, to really do this. We can't see the Hellenistic world that the Gospels were written in because our world is Christian. Our, our, our connection to the Bible is Christian, which didn't apply to 
any biblical writer anywhere in the biblical text. Right. So nope. we move out of when we, you know the Romans come in, destroy the temple. You know the Jews are scattered to the four corners of the earth, and and really, I mean, we have the Bar Kokhba revolt, and and really by the the uh, 135, we have the the formation of a kingdom called Byzantium, and that's you know that's our Christian kingdom really. And that is kind of where we tend to go back to is that period. Of course, after that we we move into the you know the Arab uh, formation, the 600s. I mean, but Byzantium becomes the place. That's the rock. That's the that's the foundation to which Christians go back. And Byzantium has absolutely nothing to do with first century Judaism, and uh, nothing to do. Not to mention Emperor Constantine and the Council of Nicaea. Yeah, that's that's uh, our period. The a lot Byzantine of people don't, period. They don't realize that that movement was designed because a, a lot of the teachings of the Jewish people that was still that was competitive, and so the idea was to crush that old Jewish stuff and bring in this church age stuff, and that's kind of where this great big giant cloud of anti-Semitism was born. Well, the divide came after, of course, the destruction of the temple. And, uh, you know, the whole structure, temple structure, institution is gone, and the leadership. And so, you know, out of that, the rabbis come together, B'nai Brock, and try to re refigure and reformulate the faith because it's, it's been completely upended. And so we have kind of the birth, um, the, well, we call them the Ta'anim, but the, uh, the, the birth of a sort of... A, ends up being the foundation for modern Judaism. But, you know, the Jews are scattered, and they're uh, basically, once again, unidentifiable. Those of the faith that are in communities and synagogues kind of go underground, as what becomes important is the city in which they live in, sort of the polis. It's a political entity. And, I mean, we can't, I'm not going to go into the whole history of all this, but... Um, the, the Jewish believers are essentially crushed and find themselves with very, no influence in these uh, in, the, in what we call the ecclesia of the churches, which ecclesia is actually a political entity. Right. So the thing just kind of goes underground, and and then because of the political entity married to the church, the Catholic Church, that begins to rise, and that becomes, you know, the predominant. Uh, uh, Environment, of course, and then not we don't get to the Protestant Revolution, Reformation until the 1500s. So we got all of that period. So Judaism is uh, becomes identifiable in various communities by what they practice: the the Sabbath and and um, uh, circumcision and the celebrating the feast and by their their liturgy and stuff. So they become an identifiable people that way. But the problem is then they are persecuted because as a community, they're so obvious and they just keep shifting around, you know, they're in Spain and then they're expelled out of Spain and up in Mexico and in New Mexico. But then, you know, later they're, the whole community kind of moves over into the Eastern Europe and Poland. It doesn't matter where they end up because they are identifiable for what they practice and they look different, they end up being persecuted. And, and and when we use the term persecuted, uh, I've read, 
I've read one particular book by I think Malcolm Malcolm Hay. It's called The Antisemitism in Christian. Uh, and I, you know, I read the first three chapters, and I could. I'm trying to keep my eyes from from watering up because of the horror afflicted upon the Jewish communities for several centuries. But anyway, and, 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 and having said that, I don't want to get into all of that. I kind of want to tap into our subject matter before we end the discussion. But, but that whole persecution did something uh, probably a great big disservice to the church world because now the foundation from which Christianity was born, in a sense, is transformed into something other than where it started. Jesus was Jewish. The disciples were Jewish. The Bible is historically Jewish. I and can't yet, emphasize enough for Jews how big a deal this is. Like, it's impossible for a Gentile to get into the mind of a Jew in that way. Like that is their identification, is the horrors and the persecution, you know, from the crusades. You, you just gonna, can't eliminate that. I'm going to tell a story. Charlie Schiffman, who was head of the Jewish um, Federation here in Portland, uh, I was talking to him one day. He hired me to do his plumbing. I started learning Torah from him. I used to go to some of his classes. And uh, he's gone now. He's a blessed memory. He aliyahed to Israel and then died a few months later. And I, I have such reverence for what he taught me and showed me. But we were talking about Antiochus Epiphanes and how he put an image of Zeus in the temple. And I said, and he, he held up this picture of the image of Zeus, and it was the picture of Jesus hanging in every church. And I said, why didn't you tell us? And he said, we did. And we were slaughtered for centuries. And it crushed my heart to know that in his mind and in the Jewish mindset, the image of Jesus is Antiochus Epiphanes' image of Zeus placed in the temple. And now that image is in every Christian church, and the Jewish Jesus is missing. The one who would have been dressed in tallits, the one who would have had the tallits hanging from his garments, the rabbi, the teacher, the, the most famous human being in all of the world, now looks like an Egyptian. Anyway, we've spent and a little here, bit of time. And therein lies the problem, because we are... I think, now this is just me going off on my <laughs> opinion, but because we have made the creation into a material creation, our focus always ends up on physical things. And so you, it, was, it was never about Yeshua and what he looked like. It was about Yeshua, Jesus, being the image bearer of God in the world and not an image bearer in describing physical features, an image bearer of the king and how he would treat his subjects and how he would restore the relationship, the covenant relationship between God and his people. So we, we get totally locked up. And so, yeah, now a picture in a, in a church becomes 
um, becomes the enemy of the Jewish people. You know what I'm saying? We, we've totally lost our ability to see the kingdom as image-bearing people going out and taking the message of the kingdom to bring restoration and healing and deliverance and all these things. I was having a similar conversation about this with a, with a Jewish person, and to my surprise he goes, because I'm talking to him in, in, the, in the framework or the context from which it's all he's ever known. And he goes, you know these things? And I said, well, yeah. He says, how is it possible for you to know these things? I said, well, I gave Jesus back his Jewish heritage and his identity, and I gave the books back to Israel. And he just had this smile on his face. And, and he said to me, prior to this, he said to me, I asked him a question about the Bible a few years earlier. He's a very good Jewish friend of mine. He said, Jeff, we can't have this conversation. It'll ruin our friendship. And what I, what I know now is that he was right. It would have, because the concept that I was bringing to the discussion is one that has murdered his ancestral line. And so he was right, and I understand it now, and I would never, ever, ever have that kind of conversation with a Jewish person again, because I understand the difference. And it's not necessarily about Jewish. It's about what God is doing through the Jewish people that's for the benefit of the whole world, and we've missed it. Which yeah. gets me back to this. I want to, I don't know how long we've been going, but folks, the reason why I'm having this discussion with my friend, Dr. Dean and I, and we've had these discussions several times, because I get what she's talking about, and I get it on two different levels, maybe even possibly three. Number one, I get the concept of why God created women and men. There, the two of them fulfill the purposes of his plan. It's, it's like everything else. The two become one. I get it. But in Dina's situation, she's been reverberating around the Christian world for the last 40 years as a Jewish woman. And so the bigotry, the anti-Semitism, and the glass ceiling have always been frontline battles for her. Now, I understand that as an American who happens to be black, mind you all, I'm not from Africa, but I understand what goes on, and it's not necessarily because white people have done this to us. It's because of our religious demarcations that, that have divided people from the house of Israel and from God himself. And so I get, Dina, what she's talking about. I understand the concepts that she's bringing, and I've learned more from her because intuitively something happened to me in 2007, so I, I'm intuitive to I can look at the Bible. I, can, I, can, I know that I can sit there and ask Paul this question. Paul, what about the Bible? And he would look at me and go, what are you talking about? What's the Bible? And we have no concept because we think that Paul knows what the Bible is. He's just writing letters. And so I understand that he's just writing letters to Jewish communities that have been assimilated into a Gentile world, and he's trying to restore them back to what Moses knew, and dare I say what Adam taught. And until we understand that, then we're, we're always trying to become better Christians, 
instead of better citizens representing the kingdom of God under construction here in this place. Dina, I get it. And I, I was talking to Michael Ortega, who's a friend of mine, and, and you, you've met him at the conference with John Walton. He gets it too. And you both have this great big giant prayer ministry going out all over the world. And uh, the two of you are soon to be connected. But he gets it. He, he marveled over your two books. And he's a former Catholic priest who spent decades in the priesthood, and he walked away from all of it, just walked away from all of it. And now he and I had the great privilege of sitting across the table having dinner, and I began to show him the festivals, and I began to show him a little bit of the Hebraic reality of the Bible. And our friendship has just blossomed. And In fact, yesterday he said to me, um, I get it. He said, the reason why I had you on my program is because I want the people that are, that are out praying to understand really the heart of their prayer is to bring forth the kingdom of God. And, you know, we're there. So now you went off and did this thing about Matthew, and you called it, What Did Yeshua Mean?, and, and you're, you're doing kind of a play on words, and I'll let you go ahead and start, start this off. But you have ten episodes. Folks, I encourage you, pay the fee to watch this stuff, uh, which, by the way, Dean, I just maybe put you on the spot a little bit. All of this information on your website, to me, is college material. It, it really is. It's like paying to go to college to learn from a Jew, like, every Christian does every time they open the Bible, at a fraction of the cost. <laughs> of the cost. So this se session you did, the series you did, What Did Messiah Mean, is a play on what, did, what, what was that thing back in the 80s? Oh, what, did, what, what did Jesus do? Right, okay. I'll let you uh, explain the series. Well, let me uh, just mention my website. It's called Foundations in Torah. That helps us to get back to the first five books of the Bible, from which everything springs. That's your foundation. Uh, and it is a membership website. There's free membership, but on up to a, there's a $25 a month membership, which gives you access to pretty well all of my material. I think I have over 400 videos on there. So I just, as I was approaching, I, I'm, my, my main effort is to connect the Gospels to their foundation, which I believe is in the Torah. But, and we cannot forget that. We can't get stuck in either one. We can't just be so focused on the Gospels we forgot the foundation, and we can't be so focused on the foundation we forgot the purpose of it. So the effort is to, to, to bring both together. And, uh, you know, when you read the very first verse of Matthew, uh, it says the book of the genealogy of Yeshua HaMashiach, or Yeshua, Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, Ben David, Ben Abraham, and then it goes on and lists off the genealogy. And what struck me there, because the word genealogy is actually the word Genesis. I mean, what it was purposely doing, Matthew 1.1, was taking you back to Genesis 1.1. And I go, wow, well, that, you know, I, I hadn't noticed that. And now we have a genealogy of, uh, of Yeshua's history. Well, when you look in Genesis 1-1, you see this, uh, in the very first verse, you see this idea of a covenant being made between the heavens and the earth, which is like, well, that's weird. Um, 
And the idea is the picture for us is a, like a marriage covenant. And in essence, is a covenant between God and, and his people. And then when you go down into chapter 2, it, it'll say these are the toldot of the heavens and the earth when they were created and all their rare, when they were finished, completed, and all their hosts, whatever. And you're going, when you look at the, when you see these are, this is the history or the account, you don't think much of it, but the Hebrew word toldot means to bring forth life or to produce progeny. And I'm going, what on earth? How do you produce life or, or you know, children from the heavens and the earth coming together? Like that didn't make any sense to me. And as I began, as I put these two together, I realized that they were the same. They're saying the same thing. That Genesis 1 was saying exactly the same thing as Matthew chapter 1. So now I'm going, okay. I just I took what would Jesus do and I turned it into what did Yeshua or Jesus mean? Like what on earth? What does this even mean? And so I I lined up the 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 beginning with the book of Matthew, and it just blew out you know all a lot of my preconceived ideas or how I understood the book, especially because I was in the church for 25 years, so I thought that way about some things, although it didn't make sense to me. And so this was an effort to really move us outside the box, outside the thinking, the church traditional mainline party line teaching and view it from the lens of the creation. Because the whole point of the creation was for God to make a kingdom and to install a, his representative king on the throne to rule. The entire story of the Bible is kingship. That is one of the predominant themes. And of course a king has needs a palace to live in. And that was the purpose of the creation, was to create a cosmos or an ordered universe in which he could dwell and rule. It's not a it's not meant to look at it as a science book or as a material origin. It's meant to look at uh, king, like in the ancient world, the cosmos was seen as being an, an operating kingdom. So my message, I mean, we, there are many themes in the Bible, but the predominant theme is of a king seated on his throne, ruling and reigning and in covenant with his subjects or his servants to, uh, to bring order. And, of course, we have the fall, and now we have, you know, we've got to reorder it from chaos, and we've got to restore the king to the throne. This is why we have the genealogy of, of Yeshua from Adam to second Adam because it takes us through the line of the king. So with that lens, the idea of the exodus was coming out of, you know, being under enslaved under King Pharaoh and being released, set free, and delivered through the sea to the mountain to where God could rebuild his cosmos, if you will, in the tabernacle. Moses, his king, could receive the governing documents and present it to the children so that they could restore order in their in their society in their environment you know as government so this is very important and that's how that was my lens through which I looked at Matthew I think I only got to like chapter 8 or 9 I can't remember in the first uh, series of, of 10 10 episodes but now we're you know that's the goal let's revisit this and let's look at this with greater themes uh, of exodus, restoration, returning from exile, king and kingship, recreation, etc. Et well, you know, what I find very easy to understand 
is that Matthew was Jewish. He would have had the Exodus story as foundation in his understanding of what Yeshua was doing. And so as you capture in the series all of the different things or patterns that are being repeated from the Exodus story, and you kind of list them as, 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 they, as they come together. Yeah. You talk about certain things that are in the book of Exodus that Matthew's writing about from a different lens roughly 1,500 years later in a different culture with a different kind of mindset, but not without his Jewish imprint. Yeah. Well, yet, I can give, uh, you know, we don't have time to obviously go through it. Yeah. We exactly. certainly have no time to go through the series. It's 10 parts, right. 30 minutes right. each. So right. I would really encourage you because I do start off and give you uh, a good introduction of the book of Matthew, who wrote it, when it was written, to whom it was written, what was the purpose. He was in, in making an effort to try to keep the, the Jewish Gentile world together so that it didn't divide and separate. And uh, that was the purpose of the book, to keep that community. So, for example, it, and I would encourage you at least to read the first six, seven chapters of Matthew, but when you get to Matthew chapter 3, towards the end of the chapter, we have the, uh, the story or the, uh, above you, Yeshua being immersed or baptized is what we call uh, in the Christian world. So he goes to the Galilee. He's going to be immersed or baptized in the Jordan River. And uh, basically after he's immersed, he rose up out of the water and the heavens were open to him and he saw the Ruach Elohim or the Holy Spirit uh, descending like a dove and coming upon him. And behold, a voice from the heavens said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. So in the series, I'm showing you that he, Yeshua is simply a representative of the collective world of the Israelite people. He is, in fact, Israel. What he does is what Israel did. So this, is, this imagery here is of Israel coming out of Egypt and going through the sea and being immersed, if you will, baptized in the sea and then coming into the wilderness to build the tabernacle. This event is very much a kingship event because the language here, this is my son whom I love, in him I am pleased, was what we would call uh, in the ancient Mesopotamian world sort of an, a, an adoption event. <laughs> so when the king was going to anoint his son and, and raise him up to become king after him, we went through this whole confirmation enthronement ceremony. So the, the language here is very much part of what we would find in the ancient Mesopotamian world. The king saying to his son, who is going to be the king, you're my son and I love you and I'm pleased in you. It's kind of part of a, like an adoption ceremony. And the idea of reminding us of the Ruach Elohim, the spirit, is taking us back to creation, back to Genesis 1, one, one, when the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. We're having a recreation event here. That is what the Exodus is. It is a recreation event of a people. After being in slavery, now they're being recreated. As I talked about, you know, Paul saying, you are now a new creation. So we preface that. This is, Yeshua has now been immersed. It is a declaration of his kingship, and he is preparing or showing us what, what Israel did in the Exodus. And then we follow that up with the, you know, he was led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. This is classic 
And this is taking us right back to the language of the Exodus and and the confrontation of Israel between Pharaoh in the you know the whole wilderness thing pulling you know as they come through. And so this is these two kings. It's it's Israel versus Pharaoh, and now in this environment, Yeshua versus the devil, but likely the devil in that period would have been Caesar, that he was, he had the same, so remember the Pharaoh, he was identified with the serpent and with the devil because he had the Uraeus, the serpent on his crown, his thing that he wore, and so if a Jew reading this would go, oh my goodness, this is the same picture and pattern that we have of the wilderness and of Israel defeating Pharaoh and his minions in the sea. Okay, so I, I want to insert something here. What she just said, folks, is key. Because when when Matthew's writing this, he's 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 restoring something to the mind of the Jewish person of his time and or he doesn't have to explain it. Because they would have connected this whole situation to the same exact events that happened out of the Exodus. It's part of their history. It's not a new story that he's talking. It's not an abstract story that he's teaching. It's part of the history of Israel, and he's using a language 1,500 years later with concepts that are in a Hellenistic world full of Gentiles to remind the Jewish people that Jesus is literally representing the nation of Israel. And I, I got to insert this. I had a dream. I put it on my David and Goliath video. And in that dream, this great, big, powerful voice, but it, it spoke to me and it sounded like it was under, like we were underwater. It sounded garbled. And, it's, it, and it was like two rolled-out scrolls that were rolling down. One of them said Yeshua, and the other one said Israel. And on these scrolls, it said, was I not born? And both Messiah Yeshua was born into the earth, and the nation of Israel was born into the earth. Was I not ridiculed? Israel was ridiculed. Jesus was ridiculed. Was I not persecuted? He was persecuted. And by the way, he was persecuted by political leaders, and so was Israel. He was slaughtered, and so was Israel. He was resurrected, and so was Israel. He's returning to the place of his dwelling, which is why this earth exists in the first place, and so is Israel. And I, I saw this parallel, and I'm going, oh, my God. The Lord is literally working out the history of Israel in front of all of us. If we could just give the scriptures back to Israel, it becomes panoramic. And I saw that. I woke up from that dream like jumped out of bed. I wrote it all down. I've, I've got a DVD around here somewhere. But I began to see that if you remove Israel from the picture, then you can only see, in my language, a golden calf from Egypt as opposed to the purposes that God placed a king into creation. Go ahead. I mean, Amen. Well said. I couldn't have said it better myself. We we have got to understand that Yeshua, Jesus, not he's not even just the representative of Israel. He is playing out Israel's story through the Exodus in the Gospels. Or, All or, the reverse, or vice versa. Israel yeah, playing yeah. out its story. Yeah, yeah. No no question. 
So I would encourage people to go back and reread the Gospels with the whole Exodus mindset. I mean, there's a reason that Yeshua came and died at Passover. Like it would have made more sense if he died at Yom Kippur, right, and been the Yom Kippur offering. But yet the time was chosen as Passover because that that was the completion or the deliverance or the release, uh, the, the jubilee, if you will, of the time. This is very important. And this is one of the other things that we mention in Isaiah because we argue endlessly. Isaiah 40 to 56, we call them the servant passages. And we argue over whether the servant is referring to the Messiah, Yeshua, the king, or if they're re referring to Israel. Well, the answer is yes, because it's both. They're, they're, they're bound together and they, uh, you know, they're replaying each other's story. And that's why the, the bottom line of the scriptures, to my, in my opinion, has to do uh, with basically two entities, Israel and the Gentiles, or Israel and the nations. Those are our two. And so Israel was, was sent to restore the nations to God. Yes. And we have to, we have to understand, and, and it, hopefully people, you'll glean this as you go and you get the series and you listen to it, but you have to understand that God's, his initiation to do this started with a guy named Adam. So the covenant system that God is using in order to restore mankind to what he is doing starts with Adam and ends with Messiah Jesus. And it's the same story being repeated over and over and over and over again. But if your grounding is anti-Semitic and your bigotry is based on what we've learned or incorporated into the story over the last 2,000 years, you miss the big picture. So, Dina, we, we're, we're, we're really long on the program. Yeah. Dina and I have discussed about doing more of these and yeah. being more consistent. Well, I would like to uh, maybe we'll do another, uh, another program, and then we can dive a little more into what did Yeshua yeah. mean. We'll just look at this as an introduction. I would just like to just say that the creation is about the birth of the kingdom. It is not about the birth of science. Amen. You know, amen. And by the way, Moses, they might have had a scientific mind, but their world was mythological, so they leaned more on the mythology as opposed to science because, let's face it, folks, Moses wouldn't have a clue what the Hubble spaceship was. And we have to be, that has to be a part of our understanding when we read the Bible. But anyway, Dana, we're really long on the program. I think, uh, tell folks how they can get the series and where they can go for it, and, 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 and how much it costs, and if you could. Yeah, there's two ways. You can go to Israel TV Network. Uh, they have, in fact, on their home page, you can just click on. You can do it digitally. You can rent the series, or you can purchase the series. Now, it, it's, it's not available as a download, but you can purchase it and have ac access to it forever. You can go to my website and become a member, and you can listen to it that way. You can also go to my website to the marketplace and you can purchase the DVD. So you have four different mechanisms. IsraelTV.com, that's pretty easy. Or just, you know, DuckDuckGo Israel TV Network. And, or go to my website, FoundationsInTorah.com, and you can purchase the this, this series there. And, uh, you know, like I said, digitally or DVD or whatever you want. And, uh, you know, that's, 
I would really encourage, I just really want to encourage people to just be, you know, be willing to see things in a different light than what you're used to. Um, and not, you know, don't look at people in a condemning way because they're trying to inspire you to think differently. My whole goal is to help you make sense of the Bible because you will admit with me there are things that make no sense. And so my goal is to help unpack that for you. Well, there you go, folks. This is, uh, again, one of the reasons why I partnered up with Dina to do the broadcast, Returning to Eden. We, we, we're going to try to be on a, We're going to try to do a little bit more. Uh, we, we've gotten so caught up in all of the things that we get caught up in in the world, but this program is important, and I'm seeing so many Christians wanting more information. And I've always said, well, the best place to learn all this from is from a Jew. After all, that's why we open the Bible, right? Uh, I happen to have a good friend named Dr. Dina Dye who's taught me a lot and who's uh, partnered with me to do this program. And I think that, uh, like Michael uh, Ortega said, said to me yesterday, when a man discounts the value of women, he typically ends up with less wisdom. And I kind of <laughs> agree with that. So, <laughs> so um, Amen, I believe, brother. I, I believe men are the hands that build the house and women are the wisdom that make it intelligent. And I think without the two working together, you can't have the kingdom of God and the earth. And I think God knew that better than all of us. So, Dina, I appreciate you very much on the program. I'm glad we were able to do this. I'll get this thing edited and get it posted, and I'll send you the link. And please spread it all over the place, which, by the way, I'm putting your stuff all over a lot of other different websites because I'm no longer on Facebook. You said something, and I want to say this before I go. You said um, sin. If we look at sin and the way that it hurts us, then it becomes not just an emotional thing, but another tyrannical government enslaving us. I got that. Sin is being under the slavery of a tyrannical adversity, which we're going to talk about next time on the show. Okay. Sounds good. <laughs> All right. God bless you. Have a great day, and thank you for uh, for joining me today. And we'll do this. I want to do another one of these next week, and if possible, that okay. might not be possible. But my brother's coming, so I I don't know. We'll see. Okay. All right. Sounds good. Folks, thank you for joining us. Have a great Sunday, everybody. Bye bye. 